Hi, I'm Steven. And I'm Jake. Welcome to Tales from the SaaS Graveyard, where we talk to employees at tech companies that are in the middle of the bell curve, not going out of business, but definitely not hitting the big time. The SaaS Graveyard is a purgatory populated by companies that have made it to annual revenues in the 30 to 50 million range, but can't get to the next level, which is pretty impressive outside of Silicon Valley, but frowned upon here. We interview folks in various roles about their experience working at companies like this. We're looking to see what common themes emerge across industries and roles. Today, we will talk with our friend Nate, who spent time at a company we will call Goose.io. Goose.io was focused on the background check for employers and people searching businesses to help people find their long-lost high school sweetheart. Nate's role changed over his five years as he explored different opportunities within the company. He went from HR operations to videographer to marketer. What a mixed bag of skills. That is a strange mix, but I've always felt that anyone can do a job as long as they meet two basic criteria. First, they have to be a competent person, and second, they have to have a desire to do the job. If you have those two traits, then I think there's no job you can't learn over time and get good at. I agree with that completely, Jake. One time I was at, in a role kind of doing jack-of-all-trades, marketing, product, customer support. And at one point we needed to do some video work and I was really excited about because I got to learn something new, uh, do something I thought was very creative. But after I did the first few, it became a chore and I was definitely less excited about my role just because I knew this was a big part of something I was doing every single day. You know, I think a big desire for success in a role is, you know, that desire for learning something new uh, day in and day out. Yeah, so perhaps the the key is finding a job that you continually find new things in. So, you know, that video editing example, there are professional video editors, and they probably approach every day like it's a completely new challenge. And so, and to you, it's just like, oh, I'm doing the same thing over and over again. So that's probably the key is you if you can find that job that maybe someone else thinks, oh, it's the same thing, but you always find something new uh, to keep you engaged, that's going to be the job that you love. And when you're first out of college, you know, that's really what your first few roles are a process of trying things out and seeing what keeps your interest. Now, let's talk to Nate and see what his path through different roles led to. Nate, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Jake. Glad to be here. Awesome. So I guess just to kick us off, can you let us know what you were doing uh, before you joined Goose.io? I was in college. Uh, Goose.io was the uh, first job that I had. I was at school. I went to studying business. And um, knew I wanted to work in startups. I basically just read Hacker News a lot. And I think I really romanticized the startup lifestyle and the ethos. And made it my goal to make it out to Silicon Valley. And Goose.io was my ship to get there. And how did you find out about Goose.io? They recruited at my college. And I was pretty lazy uh, doing my job search back then. I want to say lazy, but... I hadn't applied to many companies. However, I had actually gone and talked to my college counselor and said that I wanted to work at a startup in Silicon Valley, which in 2012, believe it or not, was not nearly as popular of an idea as it is now. And when they came to recruit, my counselor put me in touch and then I talked to them and really enjoyed the conversations. Like everyone I talked to, I really jailed with. And then, yeah, they hired me. When you joined, how big was the company? What was the kind of high level size of sense of revenue, anything like that going on? So I jo- when I joined, um, there was about 180 people working at headquarters. And probably, I don't know if this for sure, but probably around 100 people working in customer service. We did that in-house. But this comes with an important caveat that uh, the company had just sold one of its products and about half the people in headquarters were about to leave to that company that they got sold to and work at that other company. So that we were back down to like 80, maybe a hundred people in headquarters pretty quickly after I joined. Gotcha. And wow. So that's a big departure. <laughs> yes. Big departure. Uh, it was culturally, uh, in- pretty impactful the company i didn't really i wasn't there for the before i was really there for the after um so it's hard for me to comment too much on what changed but it definitely made a big difference you can imagine that whenever there's a big exit at a company you know there's all sorts of questions uh, about who gets to go who gets to stay 
how the spoils and riches are distributed, etc. And I think there was a lot of that going on. But as a new hire, fresh out of college, I was pretty safe from hearing it or getting involved in any of that. And what was your, your role there? So I started out in operations, uh, like an HR team, very small team. And recruiting was a big part of my job. I actually started doing the college recruiting that recruited me uh, later that year in February. But also things like company events. We had a happiness engineer. Um, so like the company was, was a really great place to work in terms of perks and benefits. So we had a lot of events. We had company trips, and I would just kind of assist in running and planning those. Um, and then like various things that we needed to do to keep the office running. Like the office manager was also on my team, so I would help her out with various things. Um, you know, everything from like taking people's photos from the first day that they joined the company to like filling out headcount and HR legal spreadsheets uh, to recruiting, um, et cetera, et cetera, that sort of thing. Wait, correct me if I'm wrong. Do you just say there was a happiness engineer? Yes, a happiness engineer, which I think in 2012 was, I think Zappos was the first company to have a happiness engineer, but it was a little bit of a trend back then. Have you heard this term? I have never heard this term. Jake, have mm-hmm. you heard this term? Never. Oh, okay. I want to be a happiness engineer. Yeah, it sounds great. It is a great job. Your it, your job is to manage the perks and benefits for the company, but usually you only have happiness engineer if you have some pretty awesome perks and benefits. Um, we had lots of food. We had a yoga room, yoga classes. We even had free sailing, which was pretty unique. Free sailing. Uh, free sailing. Yeah, the company would pay for you to get your sailing, your skipper's license, I think, and. Uh, then once you had your skipper's license, they would pay for any like sailing rentals that you wanted to do with other people at the company. So you would always be uh, take, taking coworkers out into the San Francisco Bay whenever the company paid. But it was like this really nice perk, and a lot of people sailed on the weekends. And it kind of happened organically because it was already happening early on in the company. A lot of the people who first started it enjoyed sailing. Um, so that was kind of cool. I, how much does sailing cost usually? Like, is this like a hundred bucks a pop every time you want to go in the bay? Yeah, probably. I mean, I I probably went on three sailing trips in five years, so it's not. Uh, I don't know how frequent they were, but yeah, it's probably it's got to be like a couple hundred to a thousand dollars every time. I've been in the working world for twenty years, and I've gone on zero sailing trips, so I'm jealous. <laughs> I think it was pretty genius. I thought it was a great move by them. No, I mean, it's one of those things you're going to talk about it, but whether you can execute on it's another thing. Was there anything, uh, what was like the final factors of actually deciding that you wanted to work at Goose.io? So the, uh, for me, a lot of it was that I really connected with the people that I talked to during my interview. Um, You know, as a new grad, what I wanted out of a career was really vague, uh, mostly based on like secondhand information. Uh, but when I looked at their website and the way they described the way the company worked and its internal culture, it matched exactly what I was looking for. Uh, they also did a really good job branding their college recruiting program. If there's like, if I had to pick like the top five things that this company did right, their college recruiting program would definitely be in those top five. Because even though the business model wasn't exactly a sexy business model, if you were to go and see Gustav like stand at a career fair at Harvard, for example, you would see a pretty long line because they did such a good job branding the recruiting program uh, to like catch people's attention and get them excited about working at a startup in Silicon Valley. No, that's never something I've considered as kind of like a big thing to focus on as a company. Yes. When I joined, I think they said 30 to 35% maybe of headquarters was people who joined out of college. So it was like a very young, young company in terms of age. And so were they just really selling the fact that, Oh, come work at a, at a startup in Silicon Valley. And, and there were no other companies like that recruiting. Yes, that's also true. So I did, it's not like I was deciding between this and some other startup in Silicon Valley. It was like deciding between this or working at like a big tech or tech-like company in the Boston area. Um, 
So this was a pretty clear decision for me. Now, is there anything that you wish you knew before you started? You know, it's interesting. Uh, A lot of the problems of the company that turned out to become like bigger issues in later years were actually pretty clear to me in the first like week or two when I look back on it. (laughs) It's it's actually kind of... (laughs) kind of like a life lesson. Like I, I, I did, it didn't take a genius to see them. It took like maybe more honesty to admit them to yourself. Uh, but I don't know what I would, I, certainly like I, I tried a lot of different careers out at this company. They're really generous with letting me explore and try different departments and different roles. And I certainly wish I knew what I had wanted earlier, maybe. Um, but there wasn't a lot hidden about the company or anything like that when I, when I joined. I think I actually figured out the good sides and the bad sides pretty quickly because it was it was on the surface yeah no no i think that resonates a lot with me so let's actually get to being there you know you're all excited to join goose.io uh your your kind of dream job set up after college what was your first month like there well the first two weeks was training and i joined with like 11 other people who were fresh out of college, which was great. We all became like best friends immediately. And it was like, I don't know, it was like we're at camp or something. And the training, you know, it was training. We sat in a room for eight hours a day and different people came in and gave us talks. And we just learned about different aspects of the company. Um, and I'm trying to think maybe what it was like when I actually started. I think, I think I really had a bad idea of what my role was actually going to include day to day. I think it's true of a lot of jobs though. And I think like my first projects were actually to help run and produce the internal speaker series. Like we would bring in speakers a lot uh, to talk to the whole company uh, about like various topics. Like maybe they ran a nonprofit and they would talk about their work in their nonprofit. Um, And we'd have to contact them, bring them in and, uh, I would record them and like run the event. And that was like one of my first projects, I think, was to edit like nine different speaker series videos and put them up on our YouTube channel. I, again, like the operations role was kind of like a miscellaneous role. What was this speaker series just for the internal for the company? Or was it like, hey, anyone come over to goose.io, come watch this speaker? Uh, it was only internal. Uh, yeah, it was only internal. That's a pretty cool perk for a company of that size. I'd... Yes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, at, at big companies, we had that once in a while, but never had, never had a company that small. Yeah, this this company this company did a good job with perks and, and like creating a fantastic place to work, work-life balance included. So, Nate, one of the things you mentioned um, was that that first week or two, you started to get a sense of like, oh, you know, maybe this company didn't have, you know, had some issues with their business model. What were the things that made you that that came to your attention where it gave you pause about the company's potential for success? Sure, uh, I think there were two things that were obviously problems or challenges uh, that not only did I notice, but that like I talked about with the other people that had joined at the same time with me as me. Um, the first one was that the people search business, the industry. Uh, had some like uh, dark patterns in their product and in their marketing. And this company was a little bit better than the competition, but it still used some of those dark patterns. The most egregious of which was getting people to sign up for a free trial for their product and then like uh, committing them to an actual subscription that they probably weren't aware they were committing themselves to. Certainly it was on the page, but it was you know, designed in such a way that most people missed the fact that they were signing up for a free trial. Um, and then in terms of marketing, like this is a, a people search business. You've probably seen ads like this on the internet, but posting ads that are really just kind of uh, misleading, such as find out if your spouse is cheating on you or find out if, which I don't really know how you would find that from a phone record or an address record. Uh, but like things that are really like in, incite anger or intrigue in the wrong way. The business for the people search industry comes from Google, from search engine marketing. And if your competition is able to produce a more effective ad than you are, you're really screwed. It's really difficult to beat them because at the end of the day, the products that you're selling are not that different. 
So when the competition resorts to like sketchy or unethical um, advertising practices that you yourself won't commit to, it makes it harder because those practices are usually pretty effective at getting people to click. Um, so that was, that was one problem, um, both that the industry was a little bit sketchy and that we were, ourselves were using some dark patterns that I wasn't too comfortable with. Uh, like the certainly were like, were beyond the line of what I thought was correct and right to do. And then the other issue that I, uh, kind of saw immediately was with a whole other project or product, um, that really just had no vision. Uh, it was pretty clear that the company had decided to find a problem. Like they had a solution, but they wanted to find a problem and that they didn't know what they were doing. And I would never have put it in such strong words at the time. Like I was still really enamored with the company. I was really happy to be there. Um, I was really happy during training. All the people were awesome. But looking back, it was very clear that I felt that they just had no vision for the product. And I'll go into more detail about exactly what they thought the vision for the product was. You move out to San Francisco, you're getting to work at a startup, so you're very excited about that. And then you you see these things that are somewhat you know concerning during your, your training, but you, you were still excited to be there. Do you have any concerns though at this time? Like, oh, did I make the wrong choice? No, I didn't have concerns in this. I didn't have major concerns. Like I, I knew that the people I was working with were good people. And I think that like that always stayed true. People who like cared about their employee, founders who cared about their employees, employees who cared about forming like positive relationships with other teammates. Like I, I could sense that I was at a company that was really special that felt like a family. And so I think that um, outweighed the concerns about the business model uh, for the other, the other products. So then let's get into your, you know, you've talked a little bit about sort of your, your, your first role there um, and, you know, sort of kind of a jack of all trades within the operations team. How long did you, uh, were you in that role before you moved into something else? So I was in that for a year and uh, right before my one year anniversary, um, I made a video about one of our company trips. We took a company trip to Pismo Beach. It was really cool. And I just got a lot of like good sunset shots basically of people like hanging out on the beach. And one of the founders came to me and said, hey, I think video marketing is a really like un big upcoming untapped area of marketing. And I think you've got some skills making videos. You've made a few of our speaker series. You made some of this trip. Would you be interested in doing that full time? And I, I kind of took the plunge and switched to that a year in. What was the decision-making process in your mind to, to do that switch? Well, I knew that um, HR and operations was not my calling. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I had a history of making videos for fun, like ever since I was a kid. So I knew there was some real passion there that I wanted to follow up on. Um, and I was really happy with the videos that I had made for the company. And honestly, I I wasn't treating my career as something to climb, but more something to explore. And this was a surprise to me that anyone would even ask me to do this kind of job. Like I really never thought of becoming a video marketer, but I felt like it was something that I could do and it did interest me. And so I said, yes. And so then what was your day-to-day -day like in that role? Well, that was interesting. It was really tough because even though I made videos as a kid, of course, I really didn't know what I was doing. And no one else at the company had any experience with video marketing. I could use like Final Cut Pro. Um, I could like shoot with a camera. I could do a pretty good job editing. But other than that, like lighting, um, a lot of other aspects of filmmaking, I had to teach myself. So I did a lot of that. The videos that I was tasked to make were product videos or testimonial videos, or actually a lot of videos about the company because we were recruiting pretty heavily at the time. And uh, I would say that it was a good experience, but it was a lot of pain uh, of me, like having confidence issues, trying to figure out how to make these videos on my own without a lot of feedback from somebody who knew what they were doing. Right. And, and so, and I guess who even was your manager at that time in that, in that role? Initially, it was actually one of the founders, um, but then it moved pretty quickly to be the person in charge of marketing. Mm -hmm. 
that's fine, but I'm just wondering like, if that person wasn't really equipped to give you good feedback on how to sort of improve in your role. It, you just had to sort of solve things on your own. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly, um, I, I definitely got feedback. Like people certainly had their own um, opinions about how the video should be and in general, if it was accomplishing our goals or not. But, you know, if I had a question about lighting, nobody at the company was going to be able to help me out with right. that. Did you feel like you had, like, did you feel like you accomplished good things in that role? Yes, but I would say that my, like, productivity was really sporadic. Like, I would accomplish great things, but it wasn't on, like, a steady drumbeat of progress. It would, there was a lot of failure along the way uh, towards doing that. Things got better once uh, we actually hired more people to work on video production, and we did more animation-style videos for the product videos. Uh, you see a lot of these like video explainers today, but once we started doing more things like that, less things with real people, then I think our product videos started making a much bigger difference on our products websites, and that was like more confidence inspiring and made me feel better. But in the beginning, it was it was definitely a challenge. So that that move to the animation style, like what? I don't see how does a video videographer fit in with that. Like, what were you then doing with that? Like, how did I learn that? I, I had to, like, teach myself a lot of stuff there uh, as well. I, my, my real, I always joked, my real video skill was being able to learn, like, Final Cut Pro or After Effects. It wasn't really, a, like, an aesthetic taste or any kind of, like, creative vision. It was always technical ability. Mm-hmm. Animation is a good choice for a lot of, like, software-based businesses because the thing that you're selling is often pretty abstract to explain. And so it's kind of hard to have like talking heads or like pictures of real life objects when really you should be showing the software and like abstract diagrams of the service that you provide, which is much easier to do with animation. Right. I mean, I've watched tons of those videos explaining exactly like how to use the software and that, uh, you know, two minute two minutes of animation. Um, right. And so, you know, in this role, you're more involved with the actual performance of the of the business. Were you aware of like how well the business was doing? Yeah, the company was pretty transparent um, with financial information. So revenue goals were uh, shared amongst everybody and reported on quarterly, I believe. Uh, and at our high point, which I don't remember what year this was, but at our high point, we had like, I want to say $80 million of revenue. Pretty good. Yeah. So the, the the it was a pretty metric driven company, and there were there was a lot of like sharing at the company level, and then a lot of discussion of analytics in meetings and things like that. I was less involved in my video marketing role and that kind of stuff, um, but it was in company meetings we would talk about it a lot. So I mean, to me, that eighty million number seems pretty good. Did you feel like did it feel like oh the company is growing and it, it's becoming you know. Um, and were more people being brought in to feel like, oh, this is a really great place to be? Yes. And that actually, a while ago, you asked me if in those first two weeks, any of those concerns I thought about were enough to make me feel queasy about the job. One of the things that made me feel really good about it was that, like, even from day one, revenue was growing, um, the amount of users was growing, people were being hired. And unlike most startups, a lot of, like, this company did take on investment but it was bootstrapped for a number of years. And because of its ability, because it sold one of its products right before I joined, it had a lot of its own cash. So a lot of the growth was legitimate, like real customers paying money for a thing, which um, made us feel like we had a lot of real momentum, which was awesome. Got it. Now, there's a couple of concerns you mentioned before, you know, from the first two weeks about kind of the, the dark arts of uh, marketing a people search. And, you know, the product with no vision, as the video marketer, did you then become more involved with those products and did anything there give you pause? The people search one, a little bit less. A lot of the information there was either like little helpful, like little videos, like tutorials on how to use the software um, or... Uh, how to see if your wife's cheating on you. <laughs> no, never had to do anything like that. I never, I never had to make a video that I like disagreed with. Uh, either because it was like using some sleazy marketing tactic or some dark pattern, for sure. Everything that I worked on, I definitely felt was honest. Never, 
actually shipped a video for the product with no vision because we never had, um, we never, we could never uh, like sit down and write a two minute script about what the product did because we didn't know what the product was going to do. <laughs> we tried, but we just, like, it just didn't work because it didn't have an end goal in sight. Years. And and th that product was never released, or it was released but without a a vision of what it was doing. It was like live and on the internet, um, but it never really had users until uh, at the end of its life, its brand was transferred to another product. So you could say that it went live and had customers then, but that product was very different from any of the original iterations of the product. So how much effort did the company sort of you know? Uh, used to sort of spin trying to figure out this new product out? I'd say a lot of effort. Um, you know, I would say that maybe at any given time, like 10 to 15% of headcount was dedicated towards it. And certainly a lot of time, like, was spent talking about it and discussing it in company meetings. Just like a lot of company attention, attention from the founders. It always felt like something that was in R&D, but... Um, it wasn't like a side project. It was like a, it was treated equally to all the other products in the company in terms of importance. And you, know, you sort of identified from a very early point at your time there that, that you didn't see sort of the vision behind it and that some of your colleagues, you know, sort of other people who were on board at the same time felt the same way. Did, but how did the founders convey it or the leadership? Do they really believe in it? Yes, they definitely um, were visionary leaders. Um, I really like the co-founders. Um, really good people, very smart, um, and have, a, have had a lot of success in many areas of their life, not just in this company. So this product in particular, they were very visionary, but, you know, the visions were vague they, the, and sprawling and filled with non sequiturs and lacked like a concrete implementation behind them. Like they would, so this, this product was, and the pitch, the original pitch when I first joined was something like this. Um, people are on the internet, uh, they have lots of different online accounts, Facebook, email accounts, social media accounts, etc. And they don't feel in control of their data. Facebook, you know, tracks you and markets to you and has all this information about you, but you have no saying over what they do, right? So like, they, they start off with like a real problem. Um, but then the pitch would start to meander and, and waver and they would end up with kind of this vague idea of a product that would combine all of your online accounts, social media or otherwise, give you information about those online accounts, right? Like how many followers you might have, but then also give you, and this was like the really abstract phrase that got repeated over and over again, control over your own data. And they would never say explicitly that this product would let you, for instance, stop Facebook from tracking you. Um, and I don't think anyone ever believed that that was possible. And yet it was still like mixed in with the pitch over and over again that by combining all of your online accounts in one place, you would have control over your online data and your online identity. Right. And it's really hard for me to convey why that vision was, was enticing. But even though part of you knew that the project itself wasn't anywhere close to solving the problem that was being talked about. It was still pretty inspiring, and a lot of people wanted to work on the problem. Yeah, I, I think I mean even just you know you you saying that like it, it didn't really have a product behind. It, I do find that statement of be in control of your data that's out there sounds very compelling. That you know we all know that companies are tracking us on doing different things and sort of think, oh, I can take back some of that control. That sounds appealing, but as you mentioned, there's no real way to do that. Um, and so that, that seems to be where the problem lies. One of the founders once said to me, one of the founders is friends with somebody who um, writes a lot of self-help books. Uh, it's like a, very, like a professional in the industry. And this professional said that if you can write a self-help book, the real key to a self-help book is to, in the introduction, nail the problem. Because if you can convince your reader that you know and understand their problem, they will implicitly believe that you have a solution for them. And I saw that pattern like repeated again and again with this product where they would nail a problem, but they wouldn't have an actual technical solution to solve it. Now, so as, as the company is spending more time on this, on this problem, is that giving you concern about, you know, the, the well-being of the company? Yeah, and it certainly, people would talk behind closed doors about the product and 
they would be concerned. So it was, it was disturbing kind of the peace and harmony of the culture a lot. Um, and concerns that me or other people would have would be that, oh, yeah, we're spending a lot of money on this. It's not going to succeed. Uh, a lot of our leadership team is working on it. Um, but their time could be better used elsewhere. Um, we knew the people that were on the team, right? Like it's a small company. I was friends with a lot of them. And it was stressing them out too. Uh, and, you know, that's never fun. So the whole thing, um, yeah, it was... It was definitely a drain on the company, uh, for sure. And but eventually they, they did make this decision to sort of to move that branding to an existing product. Yes. So uh, again, our, our company, the company sold um, background checks for employment purposes, but there's also a lot of use cases for background checks um, for things like the gig economy, um, like Uber, Airbnb, etc. Places where you you're um, you need to like quickly do background checks on thousands of people automatically. And so we built an API and moved brand to that API. And so you could say it like launched successfully and it did have customers. Um, it probably still has customers to this day because this company is still running, but it was not the original intention of the brand or an intention of the product at all. And so I, I, you know, before we started recording, you'd mentioned that you then moved from videography into another role. What was the sort of, what were you doing sort of at the end of your time uh, at Kusayo? So I moved into another role because the company had layoffs. Uh, we can talk about why there were layoffs later if you want. But when the company had layoffs, I lost everybody on my, my team uh, that worked on the, the video production. And the company became much more focused again on doing things that made money um, mm -hmm. than it was like, you know, a few days prior. And the marketing team was also drastically reduced in size. I want to say like less than half of the original people, or like we lost more than half our people, maybe even two thirds. So it was clear that everybody was going to have to become more of a generalist and less of a specialist. And so I still did a little bit of video work, but I was interested in and kind of had to pick up other skills as well. So that included social media marketing, included like various things on our website, like just um, our product website, adding blog posts or adding new product pages, working with designers to put that kind of stuff up, that sort of thing. And so let's go to the layoff. So, you know, there have been times of good, good revenue, but there's this sort of lack of focus on um, this, this newer product. What was it that caused the company to have to have layoffs? So? The layoffs came as a, a very conscious choice by the company. And this was, this was interesting to me because the layoffs were emotionally a really big deal, a much bigger deal than I ever expected layoffs to be. And they were the direct result of the company doing the right thing like six months earlier. But at six months earlier, none of us really realized what the cost was going to be for, for doing it. So to speak more specifically, the people search business was our cash cow. Like Tom was not making any money. Um, the other company, the background check company for employers, was making some money, but not nothing near what People Search was doing. But like I said, the industry was kind of sketchy, and we had some of those dark patterns on our website, like the the free trial thing that I mentioned. And the dark patterns were the kind of thing that people again talked about behind closed doors, and no one was really happy with. But I think for very um, practical reasons, which we'll get to in a second, nobody wanted to remove it because it was really important uh, for us to make money. But right. I think we reached a boiling point where the company was starting to get more public attention and we wanted things like the background check company and to get more publicity. And in general, we kind of just felt like it was time to take the high road here and stop using these, these dark patterns. So they released a new version of the the people search site like completely redesigned and it was great and worked like you would like a consumer would want their people search website to work but that immediately drastically cut down on the amount of money we started making because our competitors continued to use their marketing practices and dark patterns and like you could see the revenue chart predictably decline every month that we would talk about it uh, it would decline like a stepladder because everybody's year-long membership would expire 
and they would realize that they don't want to renew and they would cancel their subscription. And so you could basically calculate like uh, by whose subscriptions were expiring when, just how much money that we were going to lose month after month. Right. And, and you, and you um, had stopped doing the free trial, the bait and switch of the free trial. So in the past you might've had this right. churn, but you weren't getting the new people that you were getting in the past. Exactly. So we had the churn. Sorry. Yeah, that's a good point. We had the churn, but we didn't have any new people. Uh, you could still certainly buy a subscription, but it was much clearer that you were buying a subscription than it was before. And the hope was that the background check companies revenue would replace the people search revenue because it was growing. Uh, or like the background check revenue was growing, but it didn't grow in time. And after six months, they had to have pretty big layoffs across the company. And so, you know, I think that that all makes perfect sense. And was that made sort of clear to the entire company sort of throughout this process? Like, oh, we're going to sort of, you know, we're eliminating the bait and switch of the free trial. And we know that's going to cost us revenue, but we think that these other things are going to offset that. Or did that sort of come out in leaks as over, over that six month period? No, they, they were really transparent about that. Um, I don't think anyone ever got up in front of the entire company and said the words like dark pattern or right. free trial. I think it was something that people were uncomfortable talking about, but we all knew what they were talking about. And they said, we're going to lose money. We're going we're gonna to release a new branded version of the site that's more consumer friendly than our competitors. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to cost us. Uh, so they, they were very clear about that up front. No one ever said we're going to need layoffs in six months if we don't grow our background check company fast enough. But you could do the math and kind of figure out that that could be possible. But wishful thinking probably meant that most people weren't thinking that. At the right. Time. So at what, at like how long before the layoffs did people start to wonder, oh, are there going to be layoffs? People did, did start seeing the writing on the wall like a month ahead of time. Uh, layoffs happened in a March of... I don't know, 2016, maybe. Um, and then, but like February, there were like some rumors. Um, but they, they did a really good job doing the layoffs, as terrible as they were. Um, they did them quickly. Uh, they told, they basically, we had two floors in our office. They moved, um, you know, the people who were staying to one floor and the people that were leaving to a different floor. And the founders talked to the people who were leaving for about an hour all at once. And then those people were allowed to stay for the rest of the day and, and uh, nobody worked that day. Like they did, they did a pretty good job of executing the layoffs, I would say. But of course, like really stunned because we were a younger company where you worked with a lot of your friends and we were kind of like a family. And before the layoffs were announced and you know, there started to be you know, people thinking that there might happen, what did you think about your own chances of surviving it? So I had, through like the rumor mill, learned that there was going to be layoffs like a week or two before they happened. Um, and the founder, one of the founders talked to me the night before to say that the two people that were on my team were going to get laid off, but I was not going to be laid off. But it was, it was like personally a interesting moment of introspection for me, because I remember thinking at the time that if I had gotten laid off, uh, it financially would have been a problem, but career wise, it was not as big a deal because I still wasn't happy doing the role. I was going to do and I won't get into it too much but I'm a very happy developer now these days uh, and that was one of the turning points where I realized that I wasn't doing the kind of work that I wanted to do and I really needed to get moving and switch to the career that I liked much better. Cool so it sort of made you think of like okay I've survived this and that's great because I, I, I'm enjoying getting a paycheck but at the same time like it's sort of almost like a it um, provoked you to then sort of think about what you really want to do long term. Right exactly. Like, I, I realized that if I had gotten laid off, it wouldn't have been a huge blow to my career because I probably would have tried something else out anyways. So why not try something else out right now? Um, but, you, but you did survive, and so then you have this sort of more now in, in marketing kind of jack-of-all-trades. And how did you enjoy that new role? Uh, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy working. The morale at the company was hurt. It took us a few months to really recover from the layoffs. But I enjoyed working at a scrappy startup again where... A lot of priorities were set based on external constraints instead of having a lot of extra cash and imagination. And the generalist role itself was interesting to me. Um, I ended up doing more front-end development because I worked on the, the website. It was on HubSpot, but like we wanted to do certain things that HubSpot didn't allow. And that led to my 
enjoyment of programming and, and where I am today. So I, I, I did enjoy the general school because I was able to find some things that really clicked with me. Now, um, you know, when you first joined, you mentioned sort of that there were a lot of perks, um, the sailing, uh, <laughs> the sailing perk. Did those go away after the layoff or were there still good perks of the company? They kept them. And we also had like free lunch, for example, and a lot of snacks. Uh, they kept them. Uh, they we did not have a company trip, but um, the founders were really cool about that. They admitted that we're probably all feeling guilty that we're still having free lunch when our friends don't have jobs. But they also showed us the financials of the lunch and the perks and said that it would not make a meaningful difference to cut um, these perks. And they felt like they were important for the company, so they kept they kept them except for the the like yearly company trip where we would go off and party because that just felt like the wrong thing to do. Prior to the um, layoffs, where were the different company trips to? Um, we went to Vegas, Pismo Beach, uh, Yosemite. Oh, those were those were the big ones. Those were big ones. Fun things, but nothing so extravagant. I mean, you're still within you know uh, an hour plane ride of, of the Bay Area. Right. Yeah, they weren't... Uh, and these were like... Um, these weren't uh, people were acting responsibly during these parties. They were just really fun because we were on vacation together. We would, they would happen over a weekend, but you know you have to pay for a hotel, flights. They're expensive. All right. So um, you know, I know that you're sort of in the in the last year of your your time there in this kind of marketing role where you're starting to realize you like uh, front end development. When did you start to think about leaving the company? I was I was stuck for a long time um, between leaving to become a developer or leaving to do something else. And I wasn't sure what that something else was. I think this is a common thing for people in their mid twenties to be in a job that is comfortable, good paying. They probably even like the company and the people they work with, but the role is something that they just can't see themselves doing for the next 40 years. And they get stuck because they don't know what they want to do. So they stay at that company and they keep thinking about what they want to do and thinking about what they want to do. So I was in that situation, um, but one day someone just said the right thing to me, and I realized that I was wasting my time, and I needed to switch and become a developer. I was hanging out with my friend who was another developer, and I was complaining about this problem, about how I was stuck and how I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do, and he just put it in really simple terms. He said, how about you just apply to a coding boot camp? And you'll probably get in based on the experience that you have already and then see how you feel and see if that feels like a good um, fit for you. Like, don't think in the abstract about what you want to do. Actually apply to a concrete, real-life program. Talk to people there. And then if it feels like a fun thing to do, just jump in and do it. And so that, that was enough to tip me over the edge and make the decision. And I applied and I got in and I still worked for a few more months to save up money before I gave my notice. For the boot camp, was that where you had to be full-time, so you had to leave um, Gustavo to, to do it, or was it like at night? Oh, it was full-time, yeah. Uh, it was like probably 80-hour weeks. Wow. When you just you, know, you got the acceptance, um, and eventually you, you told your uh, manager that you were going to do this, uh, did they try and convince you to stay? No, they didn't try to convince me to stay. Um, there's was a lot of people. There was like a there was a lot of people leaving at the time, and I think they kind of knew that I was going to um, give them this news, and they kind of knew that I I had I wasn't enjoying my role. I hadn't I hadn't found what I wanted to do. Basically, I was I was somewhat close with the founders. Like we would talk about some of the stuff openly. Um, the company really liked walking meetings and one-on-ones. So you spend a lot of time talking to people about your own careers and aspirations. And so they had kind of known indirectly that I wasn't happy with um, like marketing in general as a career path. So when I told them, I don't think it was a huge surprise. Uh, and yeah, they, they let me go. Even before, I guess, when you're, you know, you're first starting to, you know, you're saying that you're not happy with your role, did they try and find other roles for you, you know, even before you'd applied to the boot camp, did they try and find a way to get you happy uh, while staying at Gustavo? Well, I think my, like, role changes before that were kind of a, 
result of that. Again, our conversations were pretty indirect. Like I didn't mm -hmm. say to them literally, I am unhappy with my role and I would like <laughs> something else, but it's like a very California way of speaking. Instead, we would like hint and haw around it. And that's how I kind of went from HR to video production to marketing. Um, and at one brief point, I almost did switch to front-end development. And I wonder what would have happened if I had done that a year or two earlier. But I decided not to at the time. Why did you decide not to at that time? That was, uh, I basically had a choice between video production or front-end development. That was a year into the company. Okay. Um, and But the founder had asked, said that, you know, video video production is... Like video marketing is a like new growing area. He saw a lot of potential there. And I was really excited about that for those reasons. Whereas a front end developer had talked to me and said, hey, I'd really like you on my team. Um, but he only said it once and didn't. it didn't come with as strong of a sales pitch as the founder giving it to me. And I was really on board with that vision. So I went for that. Right. And I mean, I'm also guessing that, you know, this was kind of in many ways, the opportunity to become a video marketer is, doesn't come along very often where becoming a front-end dev, you know, it's it's an easier job to get. Yeah. I think that's I think that's true and I also I think it was part partly an identity thing. Like I saw myself more as the kind of person who I went to a business school, right? I saw myself more as the kind of person who would work in marketing or as a video producer, not as someone who's a developer. So a couple last questions before we wrap things up. Um, did you, were you earning equity sort of throughout your time there? Yes, I had options and you got more options as time went on. And so when you left, did you choose to exercise them or not? I did not. They had very generous terms. You could exercise within two years. So I kept tabs on the company, but I ended up not exercising them after two years, which I did think about a little bit because again, they're still in business, but. I decided to take the financially safe route. And so I think to wrap up with our last question, Nate, um, let's say we had a time machine uh, before you walk into that career fair and you go back in time and you talk and you see yourself. Do you tell yourself to still take the role at goose.io or do you say, Hey, maybe go try something else? Oh, the, the counterfactual question. I think I would definitely do it again. I think, um, the company taught me a lot about success and failure. I don't view the company's trajectory in general as a failure. Uh, they certainly made money for their investors. Um, the people who worked there learned a lot and had a really good time. And the culture was a very kind, family-oriented culture. And I had a lot of life experiences that made me who I am today. So I would not have traded it for anything. Uh, I definitely got my Silicon Valley experience and that's what I was looking for. I didn't join the next Facebook, but I, uh, I don't know. I, I still wouldn't trade it for anything, I think. Excellent. Nate, thanks for joining the show. Thanks, Steven. Thanks, Jake. Dark patterns. Save your soul or save your company. Jake, which would have you have chosen? You know, I'd like to believe that I would, I'd do the right thing. But, you know, a couple of things come across my mind. Number one, what really is the right thing? Because, you know, they they decide to save their soul in, instead of uh, saving the company. But that means that led to layoffs. And, you know, if you're the founder of a company and you're leading to your employees getting laid off, is that the right thing to do? And then the the other issue is, you know, let's say they stopped and, and they, they did stop um, running you know, ads about finding, your, uh, finding out if your spouse is cheating on you. It doesn't mean the competitors stop. They kept doing it. And so that, that evil still exists out there in the world. I was going to say, I think that's probably the hardest thing is that no matter what good actor Goose.io was by changing their ways, people were still out there. The competitors still doing the dark patterns, still convincing people they need to buy their product year in and year out. And they're just going to do the wrong thing. And there's not going to be a penalty for them. The only one who gets hurt is the employees at Goose.io at the end of the day. But of course, that doesn't feel good either way, because if you're showing up, eating that free lunch, going sailing all the time, and knowing that you're affording all this, all these great benefits because of your kind of manipulating people's buying patterns, I wouldn't sit well with me. And I think I'd, I don't think I'd quit outright because I'd probably love the gig and all the benefits and stuff. But I think I'd probably want to start looking at something else pretty quickly. Once you had your third sailing trip. <laughs>
once I have my third sailing trip for the year, I think, yeah, I think that's a fine cutoff moment. Yeah, it's really tricky because, you know, with every job you probably have, there's always a little bit of manipulation when, you know, in any capitalist society, you know, you at a grocery store, they put gum right by the checkout. So you just grab it without thinking about it. Is that a dark pattern? Like, where is that line of what is ethical and what is unethical? Yeah, we just one grocery store just needs to take it away for now. And just so we can see what their layoffs look like due to that decision. And then and then I think there's an accurate discussion that you had there. Well, you know, once they did finally shift away from the, the dark patterns, they fell into another trap that we've seen a few times. Uh, they did a great job of recognizing a pain point, but didn't have a real way to solve it. This idea of take control of your online data. Yeah. And, you know, when you hear that phrase, it sounds like such a great problem. It sounds like such a great value proposition. Like, you're not going to say that to someone in today's age. And someone's going to be like, no, I don't want a product that lets me take control of my online data. You know, and that's part of the problem is the issue they were trying to solve was so broad. Different people can hear that and it means different things. I'm like, oh, is it just social media data? Is it like credit card data? What what do you what am I taking control of? And everyone can get really excited about it, but it doesn't mean that there's going to be a solution for it. Like, did Goose IO even have the resources to like take control of the data? Is the data all held by other companies at the end of the day that you have very little ability to execute a solution that would actually solve the problem? Right. It just sounds like something that you can spin your wheels on for years and years. And, you know, all your, your board is probably like, wow, this sounds great. These, these guys are going to be the next big thing. But, yeah, what does it really mean? And how could you actually um, deliver a tangible product that people would pay money for that could at least solve part of this problem? And I think that's probably the big challenge is the founders knew they needed something cool. The leadership team knew they needed something cool. But... They didn't know what it was, but they liked this problem and they felt like that was the next step. But just because you have a problem or a very broad problem doesn't mean it's going to be the future of the company or means you can even execute on it. You know, it's very hard to take this very broad problem, actually refine it to a point that's something you can act upon, but still keep the level of excitement and engagement on that from the board level. Because if it was very minute, take control of this one piece of data in your life, it's no longer as broad or probably has the TAM to back it up for the board to be excited. And then next thing you know, you're in the SaaS graveyard. Exactly. Well, that wraps it up for this episode. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the near future for episode 10.